Welcome to Rare On Air, the new monthly podcast from Eurodis, Rare Diseases Europe. I am your host, Julian Poulan, and once a month we will be exploring the challenges, successes and experiences of those who live with a rare disease. Most people living with a rare disease live with a disability. This disability can be visible or invisible and present varying challenges to an individual's daily life. In today's episode, we explore some of these challenges and particularly those related to accessible workplaces and the experience of traveling across European borders or living in a different country. I speak to two advocates who both live with a disability resulting from a rare condition. They share with me their experiences and their passion for improved policy making across Europe for people living with a disability. I also talk to our colleague at Eurodis, Raquel Castro, who discusses the policy progress that has been made thus far towards building a more equitable Europe for people living with a disability and the progress that must further be made. Hello, everyone. I would like to introduce Rebecca Tvet-Skarberg. She is someone who lives with osteogenesis imperfecta, is an advisor at the Norwegian National Advisory Unit on Rare Diseases, and she's also a board member at Eurodis. She is calling in from Norway. Hello, Rebecca. Hello. Nice to be here. And we are also being joined by Adela Odrihotska, who lives with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. She's a young advocate for people with a rare condition, and she works as a medical translator. Hello, Adela. Hello, Julien. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And we are also joined by Raquel Castro, our expert and social policy and initiatives director here at Eurodis. Hello, Raquel. Hello, Julien. Thank you for having me. It's great to have all of you. Um, so today, of course, we're talking about sort of disability policy. Very often at Eurodis and in lots of disability fields, there's often an overemphasis sometimes on health policy and medicine and health systems. But of course, there is so much more that is important to someone's daily life. Um, so today we're going to talk about sort of looking beyond the realm of health policy, talking about how to make sure that people can live their lives to the full in the workplace and in their day-to-day lives. I'm going to start the conversation with Rebecca and Adela by asking each of you about your experiences growing up and in your day-to-day lives. If I may start with Rebecca, can you tell us how early in your life you may have been diagnosed with osteogenesis imperfecta? I was actually diagnosed shortly after birth because I had multiple fractures in my body. This was back in 1975 in California. And although the doctors were probably pretty much up to date, they still did not have too much information on OI. So when I was born, the doctors actually predicted that I might not survive infancy based on what they knew at the time. I'm not the only one that was not meant to survive infancy. In fact, I hear of these experiences and stories even today. This is one of the many impacts of rarity, actually. So actually, if we may focus on that condition, because I think it would be interesting for the listener who may not be familiar with a particular condition, would you be able to describe what OI, osteogenesis imperfecta, actually is, what it is kind of medically, and what are its main symptoms? Yeah, I'll try not to uh, make it too complicated, but osteogenesis imperfecta is a rare genetic condition of bone and connective tissue. The prevalence is about 1 in 15,000 births, and it can be found in boys and girls all over the world. OI is found actually in an Egyptian mummy from about 3,000 years ago, and I believe that mummy is on display in the British Museum in London. So even though OI has been around for a very long time, they are still missing quite a lot of pieces to the puzzle. But they do know that OI is caused by a genetic defect resulting in insufficient production and misformed collagen. 
So collagen is essential in connective tissue, and I tend to think of it as the glue that holds bone mass together. This faulty glue leads to bone fractures, to loose joints, to weak tendons and muscles. But when you think about it, you actually have collagen throughout your entire body. So your skin can be affected, your sight can be affected, your hearing, your pulmonary functions, your breathing, even our teeth can break because of a lie. So while fractures in infants seem to set off the alarm bells for many doctors, for many, it may even be the main medical issue in childhood. But in fact, with age, all these other symptoms become more evident and more serious. Today, as an adult with OI, I feel that it's really important to make it known that OI is about a lot more than just bones. It's about pulmonary issues, it's about hearing, seeing, breathing, as well as fractures. And while a bone fracture can heal with time, these other issues have more long-term consequences, which can lead to different levels of disability. So, Rebecca, I think you mentioned obviously before this, your age is 47. Um, so you're actually a fair bit older, I think 20 years older than our young advocate on the call. Rebecca, it'd be interesting learning actually about what it was like growing up with OI, what sort of challenges you faced throughout your childhood when you were living with this condition. What was that like? Well, although I, I had many, many, many fractures in my childhood years, I still did a lot of the same things that other children do. We didn't really keep count of all the fractures, but we estimate that I have had about 100 fractures throughout life, and most of them I had in my childhood years. I know my parents often would prefer wrapping me in bubble wrap, but they still enrolled me into public school. I still, I joined a swim team, I played the flute in the school band, I joined Girl Scouts or Brownies as we call them. I sang in a choir, and I even did some ballet lessons in my tiny walker. Did these activities lead to more fracturing? Yes, they certainly did. But my family felt the importance of gaining life experiences. Fractures heal, but missing out on social interaction and social development is much harder to make up for. I don't really uh, think the whole impact of being born with OI really hit me until I was about eight or 10 years old, when I realized I would probably have OI my whole entire life, and that I might have to take some precautions that other people don't have to take. I might have to make some smart life choices when it came to what kind of job I was going to have, or where I was going to live, or what kind of mobility aids or assistance I would need. I can remember getting my first wheelchair when I was about eight years old. I clearly remember the sense of freedom I felt riding around in my chair for the very first time. My wheelchairs have always been my most favorite tools of independence. With my chair, I could go anywhere I wanted to, when I wanted, uh, with whoever I wanted. I could keep up with my friends. I could take part on a whole different level. And when I became older, I started to realize how inaccessible many buildings and public areas are. It grew into these kind of feelings of unfairness and even discrimination. Even to this day, I feel it, I find it very difficult to understand why not all schools and public buildings are accessible to every member of public. Not providing access for everyone by choosing not to build that ramp 
or choosing not to put up those buttons in Braille is actually a form of discrimination. This could also, of course, affect people's mental health by making people feeling more isolated than necessary and more left out. And this has to change. Absolutely. There's so much more to be done, especially when it comes to making public spaces and services and schools and all of these institutions of daily life more accessible. When it comes to employment practices, of course, there are those things as well. But what employment policies across Europe would you like to see improved so that people living with a condition like your own, OI, are empowered within the workplace? Well, firstly, I feel it's really important that OI and other rare conditions become more recognized when in assessments of disability, that they're not left out of the assessment system. It's very important to be able to combine work with having a disability. That means have being able to have a part-time job and at the same time being able to earn enough money to make a living. Not many countries have this kind of system where you combine the both. I think if, if we could find systems or packages where people could actually work part-time but also have time to go to physiotherapy or to just take a day of rest or whatever, I think we would see more people in the workplace. Also, I think making education and workplaces more accessible so people can contribute is really essential. Having OI leads sometimes to having periods of time where you have major health issues, and that makes it really easy to kind of fall out of work life. Maybe your, your level of functioning has changed. Maybe you need more assistance or other mobility aids. It's important to make this accessible and to make adaptions so that you can continue to take part in everyday life and return back to, to work after having a bad health cycle. Being recognized for your current level of disability is vital to access health and social care services. I'm actually going to bring in Adela into the conversation at this point, because Adela, you live with a different disability. It might be a disability that is less visible uh, or might be considered invisible, maybe. So you may actually deal with different sorts of challenges on a day-to-day -day basis. But first of all, can you tell us your story of having been diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? Of course, Rebecca was diagnosed very early on in her life. Were you diagnosed early on in your life? No, my experience is quite different from Rebecca's experience. So I'm, I'm 28 years old, almost 29. And I was actually diagnosed just a few years ago. So uh, I was living undiagnosed most of my life. And I got access to genetic testing only a few weeks ago. So to see which type of EDS uh, I do have. And uh, I have many comorbidities that usually go with having EDS. I also have dysautonomia that many patients do have. And I was actually diagnosed with dysautonomia before I was diagnosed with EDS. This got us on the path to, to the right diagnosis as well. I see. So actually, how would you describe Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome? First of all, how would you describe what Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is? And how does it manifest in your day-to-day -day life? What sort of experiences does it cause you to have? So it is a disease that affects your connective tissues. And connective tissues, you know, it is basically what holds your body together. And it is a, it is a complex mixture that provides strength to all the structures in your body. And Regarding the symptoms, it is mostly joint hypermobility, so frequent dislocations, subluxations, very loose, unstable joints. 
because there is nothing that holds it in place, basically. And muscles are trying to compensate for that and take the role of the connective tissue. So physiotherapy is very important to make the muscles stronger so they can take the role of the connective tissues. Uh, it is chronic pain, chronic fatigue, and it can be digestive issues. It can be inexplicable allergies, very strong allergic reactions, etc. I see. And have you experienced in the workplace any sort of challenges or has your workplace been accommodating uh, or throughout your career? Have you experienced ways in which you as a worker could be better empowered given your condition? You know, the DEY, so the diversity, equity and inclusion within workplace is actually a very important topic to me. And I hope and I wish that the open labor market would thanks to the employment policies across Europe, become more accessible for people with disabilities, you know, and more flexible and more accommodating. And it is not only about combating stereotypes and misconceptions or, you know, ensuring reasonable accommodations at work. This particular shouldn't even be a discussion anymore. This should be a norm and a completely automatic process. But it starts way before this, you know, even before the hiring process, that we also need to make sure that we make the hiring process accessible to all. And I hope that there will be no place for ableism and any form of discrimination in general, because I wish people with disabilities, especially invisible disabilities, in my case, weren't afraid of disclosing their disabilities to an employer because they are afraid it would be an obstacle to their career or even worse, that it could destroy their career. Because, you know, what really counts and what should be the main factor in the hiring process are always your skills, the skills that you can offer to the company. And the fact that you are not physically able to climb the stairs or that you cannot be sitting 40 hours per week physically in an office should not matter at all. And, you know, it, it is good to keep in mind that in, individuals with invisible disabilities are already part of every company and every organization, even if no one has disclosed their disability yet. So maybe to have, you know, better protection against all forms of discrimination. For my case, I'm happy to say that now I'm in a company that is very inclusive, which can change your life completely. This is something also that Rebecca has mentioned. So I, I wish more companies and more organizations respected those DEY strategies. Definitely. And also, you are also someone who likes to travel. And of course, as a translator, I'm sure traveling could be quite central to your work, both now and in the future. Have you had any difficulties personally when traveling abroad? Um, has going to a different country presented challenges that you don't necessarily experience when uh, living in the Czech Republic? Well, I think I'm quite... Um particular case because you know for for my case I moved abroad twice during my university studies and more particularly to France and I have to say that it was the best decision that I could have made for myself and you know I had a very high level of support thanks to the European Union to the Erasmus plus mobility project that is actively supporting academic staff with disabilities and I have actually never had this high level of support during my whole life in my home country. It was only when studying abroad. And when talking about, you know, traveling, I need to mention I'm a huge fan of the Eurokey. <laughs> I don't know if, you know, it's not in every country, but it's the Eurokey or rather key in the United Kingdom that ensures access to all accessible toilets, lifts, ramps, or other facilities across Europe. Uh, of course, not 
every European country is involved for the moment, but it would be great if we could get more, more countries involved. And this for someone with an invisible disability, not being forced to ask actually uh, someone to open you know, uh, a facility or to have access to, to a lift, it's life-changing. But also, of course, um, it wasn't all, all only positive, <laughs> but um, my experience with traveling is mostly positive. But, you know, when living in another country or traveling, I think that we should make sure to have access to a cross-border healthcare and to a joint medical care. Well, your experience clearly highlights where the EU can actually facilitate progress, but it also, of course, illustrates where there are inequalities across the EU when it comes to supporting people living with a disability. Considering that, it's at this point that I'd, I would actually like to bring Raquel into the conversation. Raquel, of course, is our expert on social policy and initiatives at Eurodis. So Raquel, my first question to you, why is it that the rare disease community is so keen to see much better disability policies across Europe. Well, as we're hearing from from our other from our other guests, we and it is in fact the reality of people living with a rare disease is that most of the people living with a rare disease live with disabilities, and those can be visible or invisible, but also degenerative or vary over time. As our guests were also uh, giving examples of that for our community. It is really important that there are disability policies in place. And more than that, it is really important to ensure that we can access those. So as Adela was referring, the obtaining an adequate disability assessment, which Rebecca also told us that happens with OI as well, remains a major obstacle within our community. So we've run an EU-wide survey, and we saw within this survey that this is one of the major obstacles so the methods that are used in different countries to see whether a person to decide uh, the national authorities decide on whether a person has a disability or not are not capturing all the disabilities and all the barriers that people living with rare disease are facing we need to see these disability assessment procedures and processes improved in order for our community to have real access to the different disability policies that are being put in place. And of course, we need better policies for disabilities too. Definitely. Raquel, of course, we discussed the importance of a supportive workplace and supportive employment being very central to the well-being of someone living with a disability. Across the EU, what policy developments have there been to make sure that that is achieved, that people living with a disability are equitably integrated into workplaces and into employment? Well, before we get to the policies, I would like just to highlight a shocking number. That is, only half of the persons with disabilities within the EU are employed. So uh, Rebecca is not within the EU, but Adela is a part of those 50% that are, that are employed. And we also know from our surveys that 7 in 10 of the persons with rare disease need to reduce or stop professional activity due to the disease. So the challenge starts really early. And as Adela was saying, before even being at work, so the hiring processes, but I would even go as far as to say that it starts with even access to education, because of course the, the barriers in accessing education have a consequence later on the opportunities for employment, which we also see in the data that we collect from our surveys. But not accessing employment has huge 
socioeconomic and psychological and psychosocial consequences, not to mention that the companies and the whole job market is losing on talent. The work that is needed is, is very mixed. So it's not all about EU policies. It's not all about national policies. It's also about leadership within the employers. It's also about how managers behave and what kind of environment is provided within uh, the work setting. And as Adela was also saying, protection against discrimination. So, of course, we need that there are possibilities for flexible work arrangements, for example, or adequate leave of absence, because we know that people need to be absent, as our guests have also given us examples. Um, we need reasonable accommodations at work. And as Rebecca mentioned, there is really important point on having having the possibility to arrange work and uh, part-time pension, disability pension, for example, or even volunteering. We have reports from members that are not able to volunteer within the organizations, for example, because that will hinder their access to disability support, so to disability pensions specifically. So this is really something that needs to, to change. It really isolates people with disabilities from employment and from volunteering roles, from being active as a civil society member as well. So it's a really important issue that needs to be addressed. And, and the solutions are, are mixed uh, really between what can be done at European level with the scope that the EU can have in these areas and what can be done at national and then within the employer level. So part of it is also down to every one of us in our employment setting. Absolutely. And I think one of the points you made reflected one of the things that Adela said about the important thing is, of course, your skills. <laughs> you know, if you have the skills, nothing should really hold you back from you being able to be embraced and perform well at your workplace. Rebecca, would you like to comment on this? Yeah, this is like very, very important stuff that uh, Raquel is highlighting. And I just wanted to tell you that the situation is even worse in Norway because it is 38% of people with disabilities are actually in employment in Norway. And unemployment is masked through disability benefits. It's much easier to qualify for a disability benefit than actually to find a job in many cases in Norway. And this has been the situation for a long time. I remember when I was 18 years old, I was actually offered a full-term, long-term disability benefit and discouraged from seeking higher education or trying to get a job on my own. I was questioned when uh, I was asked about my hopes and dreams for the future. And I was told that I had such a severe disability that I needed to be realistic. But luckily, I went against the <laughs> stream and I said, uh, I, th I um, said, thanks, but no thanks thanks. I want to try and get a disability. And it was lucky enough to get a job very directly after university. But I think it's very important that nobody is going to give us a job to be nice. We can't play on that. We can't play on, on the company's um, charity feelings or whatever. We have to be recognized for the skills and the qualifications that we actually have. That is why making education uh, accessible is so, so very important important and to have equal expectations when it comes to higher education for people with disabilities as it is for people without disabilities because let's face it our disabilities has given us some very unique skills i have skills when it comes to problem solving
planning, when it comes to planning, to being to work together with people I maybe don't like because I need assistance. All these are good qualities in a in a workplace environment, and we should we should utilize that. That's really interesting, and also it sounds like a very undesirable and suboptimal state of affairs. And you'd think that would be a negative for all parties. Adela, do you have any thoughts on the policy progress that's been made in this area? Yes, I wanted to comment on what Raquel and Rebecca were saying. So, uh, Rebecca, you were describing the situation in Norway. So I would like to add some information about the situation in the Czech Republic. And it is actually that if you have disability benefits, the access to an employment gets harder because you are allowed to only work for a certain amount of percent. So for employers, when they see that you have a disability benefit, that you can, for example, work only on 50%, it's a huge problem for them. I got never recognized as a person with a disability in my country. So I have zero social support in, in my country. And I think, which is very sad to say, but I think that because I don't have these disability benefits, that I can access employment better, which shouldn't be the case, obviously. And also we should talk more about, you know, those situations where you have to juggle between a full-time job and managing your care. So this is also a very important topic. And what Raquel was saying, you know, I actually read this morning that the employment of people with disabilities has increased by 25% since remote work arrangements. And with that, you know, what I like to say is what the COVID-19 pandemic has also shown us was how ableist we are as a society. Because, you know, people with disabilities or diseases fought for ages for work, school, medical care accommodations. And we were told for years that it was impossible to work from home, that it was impossible to attend school from home. It was impossible to have access to online medical appointments. And these, you know, arrangements or accommodations were all sorted and made available within a few weeks of people without disabilities needing them after the start of the pandemic. And now, as we start returning to um, some sort of normal life, they are being revoked for many again. So it has really shown us that there, if there is a motivation, disability arrangements and accommodations can be easily sorted out, you know. Absolutely. It shows just how arbitrary certain rules were. And it's a shame to hear that they're actually coming back because you thought that there would have actually been more permanent changes. But that's actually a really interesting reflection. Thank you, Adela. So moving on to the conversation of the accessibility of various services, especially as one moves across borders. Raquel, I'd like to turn back to you and ask you sort of what policy progress is being made in the area of making sure that people can travel freely across the continent without having their uh, access to services hindered, if you will. Of course, it was interesting hearing Adela say that when she went to France, she actually had a better experience with accessing services and so on. But of course, some people who move to another country, they aren't able to access services that should be available, or they aren't able to access services that could be better for their condition than if they remained in, say, their home country. What kind of policies are being developed to resolve that issue? So there is a very interesting EU initiative ongoing that a proposal should come out at the end of this year. So that is the European Disability Card, and that is done within the European Strategy for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. We know that this will not solve all the challenges. We also have to bear in mind that Europe does not have a huge mandate as far as these things are concerned, because there's a lot that is down to the national authorities. So the European Card is a very interesting initiative 
initiative for us, the European Disability Card, and it really aims at supporting the traveling abroad within the EU for persons with disabilities and how they access a certain number of services. So uh, the proposal is still ongoing, so the, the final card is not out there. We don't know exactly what will be included or not, as the Commission is still consulting, uh, running public consultations, but in principle, if you have a disability status in your country, you will be able to apply for the card. And when you will be traveling abroad within the EU and accessing services that are covered by the card, so for example, leisure, culture, uh, sports, and some transports, maybe other services will be included, you can show the card and you will be granted the same conditions offered to the national persons with disabilities. So you, no questions asked. You do not have to prove your disability, explain what your disability is, and you will get the same conditions as the people that are living in that country. Now, it is really important that the card is as broad as possible in terms of the services it covers, but it is already clear that it will not cover disability benefits. So everything around the disability pensions, social protection, social security is a national competence, and this card will not be able to, to guarantee access to that. So it also doesn't solve issues that Rebecca was mentioning uh, as the built environment or how airlines are handling travel for persons with disabilities and, uh, and for example, for wheelchair users. So it, it addresses one part of the problem, not all part of the problem, but it's, it's an interesting initiative nonetheless. And the other issue is that, of course, the card is for persons who have disability status. So that goes back to my previous point on, of course, we need to make sure that everybody who has a disability has status in their country for them to be able to access this card and, of course, other policies that benefit them and, and support them to live independently. Absolutely. It sounds like disability assessments themselves and how they're implemented across all the different member states, that's very central to any effective or optimal policy aimed at empowering people with a disability. You can have all these different innovations and ideas and schemes, but I guess if they're not underpinned by a system for actually recognising people with specific disabilities, they will never be as effective as they can possibly be. You mentioned the European Disability Card. I'm aware that actually comes from a certain strategy. Would you actually be able to describe this strategy or explain what the strategy is? Yes, indeed, Julian. So it's the European Strategy for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities that was adopted indeed in 2021 and is ongoing until 2030. So of course, it's a multi-year strategy. There's a lot to do. It cannot be done all in one go. So there's a, a time span until 2030. And its, its focus was on ensuring that we progress to ensure that persons with disabilities enjoy their human rights, have equal opportunities, decide where, how, with whom they want to live, and experience less discrimination, for example, amongst other things, all of which relevant to the conversation that we're having here now. And the strategy covers different areas around accessibility, independent living, social protection, non-discrimination, protection of violence, and of course, from violence, and of course, being an European strategy, um, there are limitations, as, as we mentioned before, but it's, it's really important and it really sets guidance for across the EU for the importance of these issues. Uh, and there are several initiatives that will be implemented within the strategy, such as the European Disability Card that we've spoken about. And these, these initiatives are all essential um, and will have huge impact. So they're not just needed, they're really essential. So the strategy is really 
really important. Absolutely. But it sounds like if the goals of the European Disability Strategy were achieved, it sounds like it would make meaningful difference to people's lives, especially given sort of the experiences that Adela and Rebecca shared earlier. What is it that Eurodis is doing, our organisation, towards making sure that Europe actually reaches these goals? So Eurodis and, and its members um, contributing to all the work that is going on around disability and disability policies by bringing the perspective of our community. So all the perspectives that we've illustrated here today of visible, invisible disability, the barriers that we are facing. So we are bringing that perspective to the discussions around EU policies on disability. And we've actually, uh, we're very happy to have been appointed uh, an observer member of the EU Disability Platform, the expert group that the Commission has put in place to discuss matters related to the implementation of this strategy that we were just talking about. But we are also working with, uh, with our members and in particular with national alliances for rare diseases in regards to issues that are very national, such as the disability assessment. So the disability assessment, we try to work on it for, from every front, as it's clear, as you, will, as you are seeing from this conversation, how important it is. So then there are things that can be done at European level in terms of guidance and sharing good practices. So we're making sure to advocate for those. But there are many things that will be done at national level. So we also want to support our national alliances in that work and to make sure that that advocacy moves forward. And then I think we have a, a broader role as, as a community and with the initiatives that we organize, such as Rare Disease Day and other initiatives to really raise awareness of, of rare diseases and of disabilities, the barriers that we face, um, and also fight the ableism that Adela has mentioned and, and so globally for anyone with a disability and then in particular by sharing our experiences of living with rare disease and disabilities. Absolutely and Adela and Rebecca will be continuing their own advocacy um, around disability policy and in fact actually in early February um, Adela and Rebecca will both be attending Brussels Rare Disease Week, a scheme in which rare disease advocates are gathered from across Europe and brought to Brussels and they meet with a variety of different policymakers across the European Parliament, across the European Commission, across presidencies of the EU Council. Adela, I'll ask you first, when you're meeting with policymakers early next month and you're asking them to make good on their promises and the progress that needs to be made, what would be the kind of key messages that you would really hope that policymakers grasp and appreciate? Well, for the key messages, uh, I would like to mention the urgent need, you know, to address the high level of unmet needs that millions of individuals living with a disability in the European Union are still facing. So we can ensure that every individual living with a disability or a rare disease gets to live with the highest quality of life possible and has access to a high quality care that is well organized. Because I think that no one should have to fight to receive medical care, which is still happening today. And therefore, I would like to stress the importance of working together at the European level and not working in silos, because no country has the means to cover every part of this very complex area that are disability policies and rare disease policies. And another key message would be, of course, the implementation or the further implementation of the European Action Plan on Rare Diseases. So the, the call to action was actually presented during the Czech presidency of the Council of the EU. 
and has received support of many member states. So there has been a lot done in this area, but we also have a lot of things in the pipeline. And I think that we just need to get the support at the European level to be able to implement these changes. And I think that now it is the best time to do it as we have gathered, I think, the best conditions we could possibly have to make the change and not only for ourselves, but also for the future generation coming after us. An action plan for rare diseases is something that Eurodis has been advocating for for quite a while. And it's really gathered actually quite a lot of momentum. Rebecca, what key messages will you be delivering to EU policymakers when you meet them in Brussels this February? Well, I feel it's very important that we strive to kind of uh, speak with one voice when we're talking at a European level. So endorsing the need for a European action plan will also, of course, be my one of my main messages. And this also brings me to a concern that I have with the, with the present political and financial environment that Europe is in. There's kind of a fear that, you know, in, in hard financial times, maybe low prevalence, rare diseases uh, might be the first people that kind of feel the cuts or feel the hard times. So I really hope that we could advocate for a kind of like a protective hand over the field of rare disease uh, because simply because we've come so far in recent years and uh, we can't lose that momentum now, even though we are going through harder financial times. No, it's definitely true that the political environment has definitely been something which has drawn lots of European attention to certain issues, but there's no reason why that should come at the expense of rare diseases. If anything, rare diseases, people living with a rare disease, of course, face unique challenges from that exact uh, those exact challenges. So you're absolutely right to make that point, and it would be such a shame if any momentum was lost. Rebecca, Adela, thank you so much for sharing your experiences, and thank you, Raquel, for sharing your analysis. We've heard lots about sort of the inequality um, across Europe, the difference between countries, um, but we've also heard about the opportunities for EU-level coordination. We've really touched on quite a broad number of areas. Thank you, Adela. Thank you, Rebecca. And thank you, Raquel, for joining today's discussion. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Wonderful discussion. You have been listening to Rare On Air, a Eurodis Rare Diseases Europe podcast with me, Julian Poulan. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe so you can tune in next month to learn more about the world of rare diseases. Do you have any reflections from today's episode that you would like to share? feel free to email us at rareonair at eurodis.org. We look forward to you joining us next month.